In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog Fathom at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Our guest on the Money Tells podcast is Robin Crane. Robin started her career as a singer-songwriter. At one point, she had worked really hard to set up a number of shows at some great venues. Right before the tour, Robin got sick and she had to cancel all the shows. This heartbreaking experience made her realize she had little control over her success. Robin could be the best singer, the best songwriter, but she had very little control over her financial success. It wasn't until she discovered her desire to transform people's lives that she found a new path. Today, Robin is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, and leading business coach for financial professionals. She's known for engaging and inspiring audiences as a public speaker and is frequently quoted in the press. Robin's mission is to create a paradigm shift in financial services to be more welcoming and accommodating for women. Here are three key money topics Robin hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like to change careers when that felt like she was breaking promises to her clients. Second, how Robin got comfortable investing in herself to get to the next level of her career. And third, how emotions are attached to your financial mindset. Robin has money expectations that are different than her husband's. Both of them are committed to having weekly money conversations to surface and talk through these differences. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Robin Crane. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammie, I am fresh back from a conference and the theme of the conference was deepening human connection and really finding the joys of connection and cultivating possibilities from that. I'm all for more human connection. I love it. It's so fun. And this is a professional conference, but we went deep on the emotional connective tissue and really challenged ourselves to get vulnerable. One of my favorite exercises was one in which we started off with a guided meditation. Then we were asked to sit in pairs with someone that we didn't know. So I was sitting in a chair across from a gentleman that I just met for the first time that morning we were asked to go back and forth asking each other the question, what's moving you right now? So I would ask the question of him. He would answer. I would take it in. I would say, thank you. And then he would ask me, what's moving me right now? Man, oh man, that was a way to get deep really quick. And I thought a really nice exercise for folks who want to get deep around money and money conversations. That is great, Sandy. Tell me a little bit more. So after you both have responded, 
how do you get to that next level? Thank you for asking because I forgot to fully describe it. So we would go back and forth like a tennis match for 10 minutes, just asking each other the same question, giving the other person an opportunity to share what was on their mind. You could choose to respond back based on what you heard from your conversation partner or to head in a different direction. What's moving you now? I love this question. What's moving you now? And I love getting deep and vulnerable. The person I was with was way outside of his comfort zone. And so that's how he started the conversation. And we developed within the course of 10 minutes, a very close connection based on our conversation. I bet. It seemed to be happening throughout the room because when we got together as a group and the moderator had asked for feedback, one person said, the next time you do this, should have tissues on all the tables. Oh, wow. So people really went deep. Oh, that's beautiful. And at a professional conference, which is surprising. And very special. It's a technique that I want to use with clients. I want to use it in my family. And maybe we'll be inspired to use it on Money Tales today. We'll have to see. We might. I'm definitely bringing it to my family. What's moving you now? I get the pleasure of introducing our guest today on Money Tells. Welcome, Robin Crane. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm actually like really, really curious. I was just listening and I'm thinking, well, what did you say? What is moving you right now? Can you give us a couple things? Robin, I think we should turn that question on you as we get into this conversation. What's moving you about money right now? What's moving me about money right now? This desire to be totally financially free while bringing as much value as I possibly can to the financial industry. That's a fantastic goal. I want to dive into that, but please introduce yourself, Robin. And in doing so, will you share a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted who you are today? Yes, Robin Crane, and I'm a CFP. I'm a keynote speaker, a business coach for financial advisors. So I'll tell you, I guess, some pivotal things that also embody my story as well. Before I became a financial advisor, I was actually a singer-songwriter, which is not the typical prerequisite of becoming a financial advisor. But I actually traveled around the world for a year when I was 25. And before that, I was writing songs kind of just for fun. Like I had my guitar and then I brought it with me when we traveled. I traveled with a good friend of mine and started writing songs and stuff. And when I came back, I remember just having this belief that if I follow my passion, it will lead me somewhere. And I remember actually, because I was 25 and in between like job and not knowing what I was going to do after coming back to travel, I was staying at my parents' house. So at 25 years old in my like childhood room, you know, (laughs) with the twin bed. And that can be motivating, (laughs) especially when you get nagged by the parents. But I was sitting in that room looking at the wall, you know, going, if I follow my passion, it will lead me somewhere. And I just leaned on that. And I had an opportunity to go to Philadelphia. I met someone. He recorded albums for people. He didn't have like a record label, but he recorded albums for people. And I'm like, wouldn't that be cool if I just had a record? So I actually like up and left and moved Philadelphia with basically a little bit of luggage, my guitar in tow, never having taken voice lessons, hardly taking guitar lessons having written some songs that were pretty silly. And I just wanted to see like, where is it going to lead me? I didn't necessarily go for the destination. I wasn't like, I want to be famous and I'm going to go all in till I'm famous. I went because I really felt like if I followed my passion, it will lead me somewhere. And 
I pursued music for a while. I ended up not recording my album in the first year because I actually started taking voice lessons. And my voice teacher said, if you record an album right now, you're going to be really unhappy with it a year from now. So let's like get you to where you need to be. Then you can record your album. And I started taking guitar lessons and I just delved in. Like I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always striving for more, being better, figuring out how can I create what I want in my life. And I just had this dream of having an album and touring and doing the stuff. And so that was one of the things that I definitely has shaped me. I have this dream to have a TED Talk or like a really famous keynote that incorporates transformation and stand up. Because when I was on stage, even as a singer songwriter, I wrote a lot of cynical love songs. And I was silly and had fun with the audience and had them singing, even banging on pots and pans at one point. It was a fun experience. And I bring that to a lot of my seminars and keynotes and stuff. And so I have this vision of bringing the performance side, the entertainment side with the transformational side. So I just decided like a week ago that I'm like starting to develop my comedy and my stand up, like freaking me out. But I'm like, okay, this is something that's really scary for me. And I'm a big believer in stretching outside my comfort zone and doing things that scare me because I ask my clients to do that. And that's my new thing of like, okay, how can I learn stand up? It makes me nervous just thinking about it. Now people are going to expect me to be hilarious. So there's a lot of pressure here. But yeah, that's one of the things just like going for it, taking a big leap. And I've done that in many ways with then becoming a financial advisor after becoming a singer songwriter, where taking a lot of risk and not knowing and having a lot of certainty around just going into the unknown. And I've done that a lot in my life in order to get beyond where I thought I could be and have reached things that I used to think were impossible. Robin, I love this message around going for it. And then this belief, if I follow my passion, it will lead me somewhere. Going back to your youth, was this something you were taught? Was this demonstrated or just something innately in you? I think it was somewhat innately in me. My mom always tells a story about like when I was two years old, I'd climbed to the top of the jungle gym. And my mom's a very nervous, very nervous, worried person. And so I want to give her credit because having that inside her of such a nervous wreck. My mom she said she would watch me, you know, climb to the top of the jungle gym, like biting her tongue going like, just let her, just let her. She's going to be okay. And even though she was scared, she let me climb to the top of the jungle gym. I didn't fall down, but I had this ambition in me. Like I wanted to go higher. Like, and that's, you know, metaphorical. And I think very real for me is that I like to climb to the top of the mountain. I never feel like I get to the top, meaning I always feel like there are people who are more successful. Like, I'll never be at the top, but like I want to keep striving to be the best so I can be the best me. And my mom would say to me, I want my kids to be an even better version of themselves. So she would definitely do that. And they would encourage us, both my parents, when I went to become a singer songwriter, said, Good luck, but like go for it. They didn't necessarily think I would be successful, but they never stopped me. They always encouraged me, do what you want. Good luck. Like they're not writing me a check or anything, but. They believed in me enough to say, like, we know you're a go-getter, go for it. So I was always a go-getter. So Robin, tell us what that meant in terms of your relationship with money early on as a child, as you're taking risks and going to get the things that you wanted and harnessing your ambition. Where did money fit in? Yeah, funny enough, I had in me this feeling that I had value. When I was, I think, 15 or 16 years old, I used to go to this Jewish camp and they asked me, you know, by the time I think I was 16 to come back as a counselor, which I was like, grew up in the camp as like a natural progression. Most of us did that. And I remember like the first year, I think it was like a six week thing. 
And we made $250 for the six weeks. But I was like, that seems like nothing. And it wasn't just that it seemed like not enough money. I didn't know all that went into the business of the camp. And I'm sure like all the money was gone. It's not like they're making loads of money. But in my head, I thought people pay a lot of money for this camp. And I'm only getting $250. And I remember talking to the lifeguard at the time. And she told me she made $750. And I was like, dang, that's like three times because she's a lifeguard and she was teaching swim lessons. So I went to the director and I was like, well, how can I get that job next year? He's like, oh, you know, get your certification, whatever that it was, and learn how to teach swimming lessons. And if you do that, then next year you'll make $750. And I was like, cool. So like the next year I tripled my money. But that wasn't where I stopped. I was like, okay, well, now I have this under my belt. I can teach swim lessons. And I think most people would go to a swim club and I'm 16, now maybe 17 to get, I don't know, $12, $15 an hour at the time, something like that. And I was like, well, I used to babysit and now I was babysitting for eight to $10 an hour. And I was like, well, now I can teach swim lessons instead of them going to the swim club. I'm like, I'll come to you and I'll teach swim lessons for $8 a half hour. So I was like, instead of earning $12 at the swim club, and I know they charge $25 a half hour, I'm going to go earn $8 a half hour. And that was $16 an hour. And so 16, 17 years old, I was driving around people's homes and I remember like getting out of the car, getting in the pool, teaching a half an hour lesson, getting in the car, going to someone else's house, teaching a half hour lesson, getting in the car, you know, and that was my whole business. And I was very lucky because my mom was a pre-kindergarten teacher. So as she saw me doing this, like I had lead flow, baby, I had a lead (laughs) source. And my mom would just say, oh, my daughter teaches swim lessons. And I was cheaper than the swim clubs, but I was better. Like I was really good at it because I'm always about providing value. So then like the next year I was charging $12 half an hour. And before you knew it, I had, you know, at 18, maybe 19 years old, even between like the summers and college, I'd be charging $25 a half hour lesson, or I do group lessons where they'd each pay eight bucks. And I'd be like 50 bucks an hour as a 18 year old. I'd be like looking at the money. I'd like calculate it. I'm adding the checks, but there was no credit card processing. Like we'd just get checks. And like, I'd go to the bank, I'd deposit the checks and I make like $10,000 in a summer when I was like 18, 19, 20, 21, like I kept doing it because it was like money. And then I went and traveled around the world for a year. An entrepreneur was born. Yeah, for sure. I guess it was a little natural. Well, it sounds very natural. So tell us, what drove you to get into financial services? You were a singer-songwriter. So why did you go into becoming a financial advisor? Yeah, so when I was a singer-songwriter, I remember this one time where I decided I'm going to book a tour. You know, I wanted to go on this tour and I think I had some help at the time, but basically I remember I had like 10 shows in two weeks and that was like my big tour. Like I lived in Philadelphia when I moved to try to do that album and I ended up doing, you know, multiple albums then. But then I moved back to California and I was doing like a tour in California and then I'd go to the East Coast and do the East Coast. And this was like my big 10 days out of two weeks where I had shows lined up. And three days into it, maybe it was even the second show, I got sick and I lost my voice. And I'd spent like months like putting this together and lining up the shows. And I was like, oh, I'm playing at this like amazing venue that I'd wanted to play at for so long. And I was so excited. And then one after another, I had to cancel the shows. And at the time, I had these fans. They used to come to my shows. They lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. 
And they let me stay at their house because they were wintering in Florida. And so I was staying at their house. And this is when I had a place to stay because I was living on couches typically, although they were gone. So I got a full bed. And then I had this happen. And I remember sitting in this guy's office. They were very well off, had a really nice house and been very successful. And funny enough, they were introduced to me by this other woman who used to come to my shows as a financial advisor, even still to this day, successful financial advisor. Anyway, I was just, I started crying and I called my friend and I was bawling because I felt like one, I had no control over my success. I'm like, even if I'm one of the best singers in the world or the best songwriters in the world, I don't know how to create the result. Like, I don't know how to be successful financially, be successful. I didn't really think of it as an entrepreneur, but I just felt like it was an uphill battle and it wasn't necessarily tied to my ability or capability as a singer or songwriter, even though I wasn't the best anyway, which was already an uphill climb. This night when I'm, I had to cancel all these shows, I worked so hard, I had no control over it. And I'm like, I don't even know if I want that life. What is that life? Even if I'm successful, I'm going to be on the road. I want a family. Like I'm going to be gone for my kids and leave my family and be traveling and do 200 or 300 shows a year. And then what? Even the songwriters, they were successful in my view, and they were making like $60,000 a year. And I'm like, this is like a path I'm on that I don't want. So I just realized that I was on the wrong path. And basically that decision, I was like, one, I don't want this. And two, I'm not fulfilled. Where am I helping people? How am I making a difference in people's lives? Like they come in, they bang on some pots and pans, they laugh at my silly jokes, but am I really making an impact? they're not going to remember this 10 years from now. So I had this desire to transform people's lives. I had this desire to have more in my life as well. So I went back to my parents' house, living on their couch again, or really my childhood bed. And I started putting resumes and I got a call from a financial company. And I'm like, there's no way I'm doing this. I have no desire to be a financial advisor. I kind of thought financial advisors were greedy and manipulative and all they cared about money. And that was not what was driving me. And they said, well, can you come in tomorrow for this interview? I said, well, do I get health insurance? Because my parents said, you have to have health insurance, right? And they said, yes. So I said, okay, I'm going to be driving up to move to San Francisco in my Honda from my parents' house. And it happens to be literally right off the 101 in Burlingame on the way from South Bay to San Francisco area where I was moving. And I'm like, okay, I'll pull over and do a quick interview for interview practice. I went in there. It was basically a presentation. It was like a U-shaped desks, I guess, tables, whatever. And this woman, it was in front of the room and she was presenting this idea of becoming this financial advisor. And she said, you know, really what you're doing is you're going to help people buy a house, send their kids to college and retire comfortably. And I was like, huh, that transformation's coming into play. I was like, wow, there's actually something noble about this. I really gravitated towards that desire to help people. And then they said, like, this is the other part of me, the entrepreneurial part. They're like, it's totally black and white. We'll show you exactly how to do this. You follow this, you can make as much money as you want. And my big goal was $60,000 a year, you know? And I was like, if I can make $60,000 a year, I can do anything. And that was my big goal. And Robin, why 60,000? Were you anchoring to the successful singer-songwriters that you knew? Maybe. I just remember when I eventually took the job, they said, how much money do you want to make? And I'm like, $60,000 because I never made more than $30,000 a year. And I felt like I was kind of rolling in it because I wasn't a big spender. 
I didn't have a family. It was like, I just figured like, wow, double that would be amazing. So yeah, I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was that songwriter thing. I took the job and it was partly also because one, it was black and white. They said I can have the success. But the second reason, because I was thinking if all that happens is that I learn how to be better with my money, that's a good skill to have. And I don't know how to invest and I don't know how to make decisions about money. And I'm a really good saver to a point where I'm too cheap. Like I don't like to spend money. And that was also a lot of scarcity. And I'm like, okay, well, I might as well just learn, get the licenses, learn how to be a financial advisor. And at least I can be my own. If I don't stay in it, at least I can be my own financial advisor. You learned a lot. You developed this interest in money. I'm wondering what led you out of that profession specifically and into the profession of advising other advisors? First of all, in the first, say, two years, it wasn't all roses, believe it or not. It wasn't as easy as they said. You know, they painted this picture. All you have to do is follow these things and you'll be able to make your 60 grand. You should be making 100. Why are you thinking so small? And I did everything they told me to do. I was very ambitious. I was willing to be coachable. And I was calling friends and family. And, you know, I was still yesterday a singer songwriter, today a financial advisor. <laughs> like for some reason, I wasn't that credible. So it was tough. And I was 29 years old at the time. The people in my network, which is what they told you to go after, yeah, build centers of influence. But like, who's going to be referring people to me at 29 years old when I just started? So that wasn't working. I struggled to make more than $20,000 in the first year. So it was a constant struggle, which is not why I left because eventually I hired a coach outside of the industry. Then I was getting successful. I got to six figures and then I realized I didn't love it. I became a CFP and I loved the planning side, but I actually developed a whole money coaching program and I developed something called money parenting, which is how to raise financially responsible kids by leading by example. And what it was, was that if I can help them with their money, with their beliefs and behaviors around money, then it doesn't matter if they pay for college or not. That's what's going to imprint on their kids to have a more solid financial future. So that was this idea. And I was doing talks. And when I got to my six figures, it was really through a very different avenue, like doing money coaching as an outside business activity and doing the financial planning. And then the money management stuff, of course I did. And that was just super stressful for me. I felt like I wasn't good at it. Even just picking the right money managers like in 2009, basically right after the market crashed, I was like, okay, my clients lost all this money because I bought and hold. So now I'm going to be like more tactical. And then I got all tactical and then the market went straight up. And I was like, they were in like tactical type of positions. And I was like, well, this seems to make sense because the market is not just going to keep going up, but then it just went up. And then my clients were trailing the market. And I felt like that's stressful. And I heard someone talk about physical assets, gold and silver. I'm trying to do right by them by not just doing what everybody's telling you to do because it did not work in 2008. But then I felt like I just kept making the wrong decisions. And I was really good at reframing them and making sure it wasn't all about performance. But in the end, performance does matter. And if I'm not good at making those decisions, I shouldn't be in it. First of all, I had an outside business activity with my husband doing basically sales because I learned how to sell better. And I was selling in a way that I felt congruent with that I really didn't feel like the industry had taught me to do. And it worked better and I felt really aligned with it. So that had started in the background. My husband and I, in 2012, we were doing some seminars and we were meeting with a lot more business owners. It was years later, but 2015, I went on this retreat in Peru. It was with my business coach and a bunch of really successful people. A couple of them were like Wall Street guys, like big investors, and they were talking about the market. 
and talking about currencies and talking about things that I did not understand even as a CFP and financial advisor. And I remember getting this conversation with them and I was like, yeah, it makes me so nervous because when the market goes down and the clients get mad and all this stuff, and they could just see the fear and stress. And I felt like I was going to burst into tears just talking about how much I didn't feel like I knew what the hell they were talking about and what I was doing for my clients. And I even told them I made these mistakes and whatever. And one of these guys, I mean, he must have been making, I don't know, $20 million a year. Like it was like very successful people. And he looked at me and he goes, you should not be managing people's money. And I went back to like the little hut thing, you know, I'm in Peru. And I cried. Like, I was like, oh my God, like, how can I tell my clients I'm not going to be with them forever when I promised them retirement? I promised I'd be there. And I had this incredible guilt that I told them I would do this. And I felt like I was completely out of integrity if I wasn't there when they're 60 years old. And at the same time, I knew that those guys were right. I was so emotional about those decisions. I didn't feel like I made the right decisions, even though I was doing everything I could to do best for my clients. I was good at the planning side, good at the mindset side, good at the behavioral side, all those things like the coaching part, which is what I still do, not good at the investment choices. And I was extremely emotional. You know, people say you can't manage your own money because you're so emotional. I was probably more emotional about other people's money because I didn't want them to not like me. I didn't want to make a mistake. It's sort of aligned with what you started with that it ends up being not your passion. Your passion is around the coaching and the helping people, not necessarily the investment side. And I'm curious, Robin, part of your story is around coaching. And I heard whether you were a singer-songwriter or all your different transitions, investing in yourself. Do you find that an easy thing? It costs money. It's hard to see what's the ROI of this, but it sounds like you've really benefited from it. Would you share how you thought about that from a money standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. So I have these money types for my first book, Mind Over Money Management. And one of them, my main money type is a cheap chip. You can (laughs) guess by the name. Uh, Cheap chip does not like to spend money, total hoarder, is very scarcity minded, is risk averse and takes a long time making decisions. And I would do that. Like I'd go into, you know, this major scarcity. And even like today with having a million dollar plus business and investing so much money in coaches and marketing and help and I mean, hundreds is probably millions of dollars by now with even Facebook ads alone. I still go through these patterns. I'm like, oh, I can't spend the money, you know, and I think of it as an expense. But back when I was challenged, like not making money, and the worst thing for a cheap chip is to go into credit card debt, especially as a financial advisor. You know, I remember when I was struggling and I hired this coach when I was making like $20,000 a year and his fee was almost that. It's either this or I'm out. You know, I can't do it. And I know there's like a part of me, like I know I have the potential to be good at this, to help people. I just don't know how. So I hired him and that was like a huge, huge leap of faith for me. And then the next year I made 100 grand. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. (laughs) You know, it worked. So it trained me. It didn't get rid of my scarcity right away. And then it wasn't always that like every time I invested, I made the money right away. But over the course of the years, I would invest even though it scared me. My second money type is delusional Dan. So I think very big, anything is possible. So when you pair that and you know you have within you this potential for greatness and better and being able to help more people, make more money, help more people is the name of my last book. When you have that in you, you're like, I got to reach my potential. And the only way that I saw doing that was investing in myself. 
and it paid off. And now hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars later over the last decade plus, it's made me multiples of those millions. And it's not just about the money. The money's kind of just a validation of the value. It's that I know I'm providing transformation and all those investments allowed me to become a better version of myself. Like my mom would say, you know, to step into who I'm really meant to be. And that's really what the investments are for. The investments aren't actually for an ROI on your money. The investments are for an ROI on you. Love it. And I'm a big believer in that, big believer in vulnerability, big believer in like stepping outside your comfort zone. Like everything you want is outside your comfort zone. So now I constantly push myself, invest in myself, do things that scare me. The stand-up thing is like the scariest thing I can possibly think of besides maybe bungee jumping. That scares me a lot. But <laughs> stand-up, the humiliation, like people aren't going to laugh. Like that is so scary to me that I'm like, I have to do it. I have to do it. And now I've publicly announced it, which is really scary. How would you describe your relationship with money today after sharing with us your journey so far? I actually think I am growing a lot, but I still have a lot of growth to do. I definitely go through phases of scarcity where I have to actively work on my breathing. I had some challenges this year, even at the beginning of the year, where our expenses alone were $75,000 a month. Then we'd have a month where we'd only make 30 grand and like my heart palpitations of like, okay, if we don't turn this around, and this was in March, I just couldn't see how to get under even $50,000 a month. And because everything, oh, that's only $1,000. Oh, that's only $2,000. Oh, that's only, you know, and then before you know it, it adds up. And it was like one main day. And the next day I was like, okay, I don't have to do Facebook ads this month. And we got down to like $35,000 a month and I could breathe again. And it only took me like a day. Whereas let's say 10 years ago when I was like in all this scarcity, I might agonize about the money stuff for months and months. So it still happens. It's just faster returns, faster shift that I have now. I still experience the emotions. I freak out like everybody else. I get stressed like everybody else. I just don't let it last as long. And then sometimes it's like, I got to breathe through it. I got to go to a mentor. I got to figure out like, what's the solution? So I've gotten better at shifting it more quickly, but I definitely still experience the scarcity. And then I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like I can never take away my value. My value, like I am convicted in the value I provide to advisors. I know I can make people money and it's really easy for me. Like that's one of my superpowers. Like I can help them make the small shifts to give them big results. And I'm like super confident in that. And as long as I have that, then I can always make money. So if I remember that, even the times are tough and you know, we had a dip and then we had a six figure event within a few weeks after that. It was like, okay, cool. We're back. It's a little bit of dip and that's what happens, but you're back on track. Robin, I'm going to use your words. I really appreciate you saying that you can be two things at the same time. You can be a cheap chip and a delusional Dan. And those are great labels to describe that you can work on something doesn't go away. It's probably part of who you are and it makes you who you are. You just want to make sure it makes the best out of who you are. And thanks so much for sharing that story. Yeah, my pleasure. Robin, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? If I was to be super vulnerable and completely transparent, the vulnerable part is with my husband. We have a money meeting every week and I have certain expectations and he does or doesn't, but I have a tendency to have expectations and be upset when they're not met. And last week he came to me and he's listening to this guy, Alex Hermosi, who's this guy who 
built a $100 million plus business, very, very successful, amazing, amazing marketer and business owner and business teacher. And he said, I'm listening to one of Alex's book. And he's like, you got to know your money. You got to know all the numbers. I'm usually looking at the numbers and I'm not even perfect at it, but I'm the one and I feel this stress. Like I'm the one looking at it. I'm making sure the taxes get down, all that stuff. And he comes in and tells me he's going to know all the money. And I was like, awesome. And then a week later, we have our money meeting and he comes in, he starts talking about what he typically likes to talk about, which is growing the business and all the like, he's a delusional damn, like the visionary stuff. And I was like, I got so stressed and frustrated because I was like, I thought we we're going to take actionable steps to like get you to be clear about how to access money, how to know the money, what are we going to take? And instead he talked at me for like 20 minutes about it. And I felt all the stress again about money. So I'm revealing that because I think no matter how good you can be with money or bad, and I'm definitely not perfect by any stretch. Like I got all sorts of problems with how I look at my money and scarcity and all that. But it's another light shining on like the fact that we can know a lot. I can know all the tools like a CFP knows and I work with financial advisors and then it comes to your stuff and like, there ain't no way, (laughs) I can say it funny like that, but there ain't no way that like emotions aren't attached to your financial situation. And my husband and I need to keep working at it. I have different expectations. I have different patterns. He has different things. And being more communicative about that and making sure to like really understand the expectations. I can know what to do, but it doesn't mean I'm going to do it. Right. And working with someone, that's why, again, I think financial advisors are so important because even as far as people have to make money, it doesn't mean they know how to do all the right things with it. Or even if they do know, it doesn't mean the emotions won't get the better half of them. Right. So that's my next conversation. I think that's really important for me is that we keep moving forward together on this path and the expectations around money and what we're going to do differently and how we're going to shift some of those patterns that we've run of one person doing something and the other person doing another and how that affects us together. Robin, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for getting vulnerable. I love that you do weekly money conversations with your husband. Just that habit is super powerful. And I'm personally taking that in and all your thoughts. Robin, where can our listeners find you? Best way to find me is just go to robincrane.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-C-R-A-N-E.com. And definitely LinkedIn is a good one. You can find me LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Those are the main ones. But send me a private message. Send us an email. You can send an email support at robincrane.com. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, Share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.